Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today, I'm very excited to introduce a very special guest, Alan Dean Foster. Um, Alan is an acclaimed writer of fantasy and science fiction. His works include Splinter of the Mind's Eye, which was the first Star Wars Expanded Universe novel, originally written to be filmed as a low-budget sequel to Star Wars if the original film uh, was not a success. He also wrote the story for Star Trek The Motion Picture and more than 20 standalone novels, including the Humanx Commonwealth novels, Ice Rigger Trilogy, and Spellsinger series. Alan, welcome to the show, and how's it going? Well, the stars are out. And, no, I presume you want to hear about writing and stuff like that. <laughs> Definitely. Or, or anything uh, in general that you're up to. Well, um, I have two books coming out this year. I have a collection of short stories, um, all previously published, involving a crazy character of mine named Matt Amos Malone, which is called, cleverly enough, Matt Amos Malone, The Complete Stories. That comes out from Delray in July. And then I have a standalone science fiction novel called Relic about the last human being in the galaxy, which comes out also from Del Rey in August. And uh, that's, that's pretty much it, professionally speaking. I just finished a uh, competing in the raw Southwest powerlifting competition down in Glendale, Arizona, which is part of Phoenix. And that always goes well because most of my competition is dead. <laughs> How long have you been powerlifting for? Uh, probably about 30 years, but I've only been competing for about 10. Okay. What I found out was when the gentleman who got me into it, Paul Gillot, uh, asked if I'd be interested in competing, was that most guys and gals who do this, they start younger, obviously. And by the time they've been doing it for 20 or 30 years, they've accomplished everything they want to do. And so they stop. Or by the time they reach 55, 60 years of age, they're so broken up from doing it that they can't do it anymore. And so since I didn't start competing until I was 61, wow. uh, I'm reasonably intact and don't have a whole lot of competition. Are there any uh, correlations between powerlifting and writing? Absolutely none. <laughs> <laughs> so for someone who's been writing a lot, is that a refreshing activity because you're writing so much or is that just a hobby? Well, it's kind of like having a couple of different lives. Okay. I mean, obviously, discipline and dedication apply to anything you do if you want to do it well. But the people that uh, know me as a writer are pretty much completely unaware of the fact that I am a competitive powerlifter and vice versa. Right. And we definitely, um, as we kick this interview off, uh, we definitely want to hear about you, uh, what you're doing, what you're thinking outside of your writing. Well, one of the things I think about is the places that I haven't been to. I, I became a writer to travel. I'm a, a traveler who writes. At least that's how I like to think of myself as opposed to a writer who travels. And if I could, uh, could have found a way simply to have made a decent living by doing nothing but traveling, I probably would have opted to do that. It's not to say that I wouldn't have done any writing at all, but uh, I certainly would have spent more time traveling. That's one of the reasons I got into writing science fiction. Uh, I'm stuck on one planet. I've been trying to see as much of it as I possibly can before I take my leave. 
And since I am restricted to this one world, in my imagination, I can visit other ones. So in addition to the real places that I visit, I invent places to visit. And had you always had a desire to travel, either um, in the real world or through your stories? I got the idea to start traveling from uh, Karl Barks. For those of you who uh, are listening or are not familiar with the name Karl Barks, Mr. Barks wrote and drew all the great Uncle Scrooge and Donald Duck comic books and invented a great deal of what uh, you see on the current, as well as the earlier version of DuckTales currently running on the Disney Channel. And Mr. Barks got me hooked on the idea of traveling on this world. I didn't come across the notion of traveling to other worlds until I got, oh, I'd say 12, 13 years old. My father read science fiction, but he had very little of it around the house. I'm not sure that my mother approved. So he had one collection of A.E. Van Vogt short stories, one collection of Isaac Asimov short stories called Nine Tomorrows, and a very battered old pulp magazine that had the first run of Stanley Weinbaum's A Martian Odyssey, which I, in my wisdom at the time, refused to read simply because my father liked it so much, <laughs> simply because we didn't see eye to eye on a lot of things. Subsequently, I realized that he was trying very hard to turn me on to one of the very early classics of modern science fiction, and I regret my stubbornness at the time. The Asimov I enjoyed, and the Van Vogt threw me off balance mentally so completely that I didn't touch science fiction again oh. for several years. That was way, way beyond my, my 10, 12-year-old uh, capacity to comprehend. But when I got back into it, I got back into it uh, 110% and read everything I could get my hands on. And when I started writing, which was my senior year at UCLA, I uh, gravitated after a while towards science fiction. And from college on, what would you say is your first uh, big break? Well, I started by writing uh, screenplays and teleplays for classes at the UCLA Film School. And I did love stories and mysteries and a murder mystery and uh, one piece of science fiction. And it was all for class assignments. But when I started writing prose as opposed to screen, well, as opposed to screenplays and teleplays, I started writing science fiction because that's what I'd always read for pleasure. So when I started writing essentially for pleasure, that's what I started to write. And I did about a dozen short stories, sent them in, all of them were rejected. And the 13th one, by odd coincidence, was not intended as a story. It was a long, long letter, a Lovecraftian pastiche, which I sent to August Derelith, the editor of Arkham House in the hopes that he would enjoy it. Wow. And several months went by, and I got this letter in the mail, and it was from Derelith, and he said, Dear Mr. Foster, I liked your story very much. I'd like to buy it. The next issue of the Arkham Collector, which was a little magazine he put out on things Lovecraftian twice a year, which immediately sent me in a frenzy of, of hurry to try and find the story that I had supposedly sent to August Derelith. And it finally occurred to me that it was the letter, and he was going to publish it as a story. And it taught me a very valuable lesson early on, which is you're much more likely to sell something if you write something that you like and enjoy, uh, rather than trying to write to the market, which is what I was trying to do with those previous dozen stories. Right. That was further confirmed later on. I had written a short story called Silent Songs in Stone, 
and gave it to David Gerald, who was an almost contemporary, who was editing a couple of anthologies at the time. This is very early 70s. And David said he couldn't use it, but that he had a friend, another writer named Harlan Ellison, who was putting together this anthology called Dangerous Visions, and that the story I had written struck David as something that might be suitable for that. So I, he gave me Harlan's contact information, and I went up to Harlan's house, and uh, he read the story. And when he was finished, it wasn't a long story. When it was finished, he said, you know, your ending is terrific, but the rest of the story is shit. <laughs> Would great. you be interested uh, I'll, if, in redoing it? I'll make some suggestions. You can see what you think of them. So I ended up doing about four rewrites of the short story. And at the same time, I was trying to finish my first novel, uh, The Time Krang, before I went into the uh, army on active duty for six months. So I had a choice between doing another version of the story or finishing the novel. And I opted to finish the novel. Wow. Meanwhile, I, I sent the, the last version of the story to John W. Campbell in Analog because Campbell had actually published my first story. My first publication was in Analog, even though the first sale was to Derelith. That's because the Arkham Collector only came out twice a year, and Analog came out monthly. And Campbell sent it back with about four pages of suggestions, which I read closely, some of which I adopted, some of which I didn't, and sent him back the revised manuscript, which he sent back with another four pages of entirely new suggestions, some of which I adopted, some of which I didn't, sent back the manuscript again, and he wrote back a letter along with the manuscript and said, I can't use this because I'm bought up on serials for the next two and a half years, but I think you've got a pretty good yarn here. And I didn't find out till many years later that it didn't matter who was submitting to him. If he liked the story, that's what he said. You've got a pretty good yarn. Didn't matter if it was Arthur Clarke or Isaac Asimov or Robert Heinlein or me. Everybody got the same response. So I sent it to Doubleday, who rejected it, with a typewritten rejection letter, not a form letter. So that was encouraging. And I then sent it to Valentine. I figured you might as well start at the top, another suggestion for beginning writers, and work your way down rather than the other way. Interesting. And that was The Tar and Krang. That was my first novel, which came out in 1972. And I believe the advance was $1,500. So you had reached out to Arkham um, at the time. Were there other writers doing that? Um, where did you get the idea to reach out to people to try to get that first break? And was that a new idea? No, everybody was doing it. That's how you, that's how you sold stuff. Wow. You tried to get a sale, a first sale or a first couple of sales. And then you would join, that would allow you to join a professional writer's organization. And when I sold my first two short stories, the one to Campbell and the one to Derelith, that allowed me to join CIFWA, the Science Fiction Writers of America, which meant that on subsequent manuscripts, because I still didn't have an agent, on subsequent manuscripts, I was able to put member CIFWA. So that tells anybody who's reading your stuff from the slush pile that here's somebody who has sold enough to join a professional organization whether it's the Science Fiction Writers of America or the Mystery Writers of America or the Authors League. Uh, and that immediately jumps you to the head of the line as far as getting something read when you don't have an agent. Once you have an agent, then it becomes much easier because the agent then takes care of all of that nonsense for you, leaving you free to write. But you have to start somewhere. And it is, I think, more difficult to break in now 
than it was then, at least on a fully professional level. On the other hand, on what you'd call a semi-professional level, there are so many avenues open to people via the web in the form of uh, web-only magazines and publications that in that respect, it's actually easier. So it's kind of, little, kind of a little of both. So something that I'm sure everyone asks about, obviously, is Star Wars. So now there is a new Star Wars film every year. Um, at that time, in the late 1970s, Star Wars wasn't a thing yet. How did you get into that world? Uh, it's funny, you know, if you live long enough, you become history. I had done, well, Judy Lynn Del Rey, who was the then editor at Del Rey Books, formerly Ballantine Books, came into the office uh, with a pile of manuscripts, some of which were unread, some of which were ready to be read, and some projects which had already been put in motion when she took over from the Ballantines. One of the projects that was in motion was the were the book rights to a really terrible Italian film called Luana. And Judy Lynn knew that I had a master's in film from UCLA, and at that time there weren't all that many novelizations being done. And she, I guess, feeling that I knew my way around a film script, thought that I might be a good person to try and turn this abominable film into a book. <laughs> so this is 1972, 73. So being a young and you know eager writer, I said, sure, I'll take a crack at it. Send me the screenplay. And she said, well, there is no screenplay. I said, what do you mean there's no screenplay? She said, well, I'm, I assume there is one, but it's in Italian anyway. And since I did not speak Italian, that wasn't much use to me. But she said, we'll arrange a screening of the film for you in Los Angeles. I was living in Los Angeles at the time. And I said, okay, I'll take notes really quick. So I went to the office of the producer who had bought the American distribution rights to the film. And it was very, MGM it wasn't. Mm -hmm. It was a little office upstairs off Hollywood Boulevard. And they had a room in there, and somebody ran a projector, and I watched this film while trying to take notes. And I pretty much stopped taking notes after about five minutes for two reasons. First of all, it was, as I already said, abominable. <laughs> Not in a good luck way either. And second of all, it was all in Italian with no subtitles. Wow. So I'm sitting here watching this really bad, essentially female Tarzan film in Italian uh, without a clue to what's going on, what anybody's saying. And when it was finished, I'm left sitting there in this room wondering what I'm going to do. Meanwhile, a young, young fellow that they had hired, the producer had hired to do American publicity for the film, showed me some of the publicity materials, some of which I still have somewhere. And he didn't know much about the film or care much about the film either, I don't think. But he was a fan. And he had had the very good sense to hire Frank Frazetta to do two oil paintings as advertising art for the film. And these paintings are reproduced under various titles in many of Frazetta's art books. But I looked at these, and of course I knew Frazetta. Not personally, I knew his work. And the film features as a female Tarzan, a kind of a diminutive Vietnamese girl who's only on screen for about 10 minutes anyway. And I'm, contrast I'm contrasting that with two paintings by Frank Frazetta. And Frank Frazetta did not paint diminutive Vietnamese girls. So what I ended up doing was writing my own female Tarzan novel based on the paintings by Frank Frazetta, which is why the book is dedicated to Frazetta. And that's how I got started doing novelizations. From that, 
I ended up doing Dark Star and started in on the Star Trek logs, which were novelizations of the Saturday morning animated Star Trek series. And on the basis of that and my third original novel, a book called Ice Rigger, or at least so I'm told, it filtered around town and reached the ears of someone connected with this little science fiction film that George Lucas was doing called The Star Wars. And somebody thought that between the spirit of Ice Rigger and the fact that I have done successful novelizations, I might be a good person to do the novelization of George's upcoming film and also a sequel novel. It would be a two-book deal. So I was asked if I would be interested, and I knew George from THX 1138 and American Graffiti, and I said, sure. And I was asked to go up and meet with his lawyer on a better office off Hollywood Boulevard, a gentleman named Tom Pollock, if I remember correctly. And having passed that test, I guess, assuring them or convincing them, they sent me out to what was then Industrial Light and Magic, which was a rented warehouse in Van Nuys, about six minutes from where I'd grown up. I went out there and wandered around. Nobody stopped me from wandering around. Of course, you can't just do that in Industrial Light and Magic anymore and uh, watched people put together spaceships out of cannibalized World War II ship and plane kits and bumped into a guy who said, you know, come here, I want to show you something. And took me over and showed me what you know, looked like a cross between a motion picture camera and a robot. And he said, this is the first computer-controlled camera in the history of Hollywood, blah, 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 blah. And of course, I wasn't interested. I was only interested in meeting George and getting clear to work on the book. And this was John Dykstra showing me the camera he'd built. Wow. But of course, you know, I didn't know who John Dykstra was and I didn't know from cameras. And, you know, you, these are the things you think of, you want to go back in time and take notes. And I watched them shoot some green screen shots of, of the original Millennium Falcon model and eventually met George, who was very nice and cordial and spent way more time with me than I'm sure he had to spare on what was really just an ancillary project. And he showed me the original Death Star, which is about the size of a basketball. And we talked about this and talked about that. And then I went home and waited for word. And word came down, yeah, go ahead and get started. And they sent me a screenplay and some of Ralph McQuarrie's pre-production art. And I had seen some outtakes. Saul Bass, a very important filmmaker, showed up one day to see outtakes. And that was kind of interesting. And that's how I got into Star Wars. And you're credited as ghostwriter for the novelization. Are you now recognized as the official writer? It was a two-book contract. Uh, book one was the novelization of the film. Book two was uh, a sequel, original sequel novel. And as far as not having my name on the novelization, that was in the contract. And they wanted it that way. And it wasn't my universe. And it wasn't my story. It was George's universe and George's story. And so I had no problem with that. I have no problem with that to this day. Mm -hmm. uh, what happened was... Down through the years, as I was lying to people's faces outright, which could be uncomfortable at times, no, I had nothing to do with the book. It's not me. <laughs> uh, uh, people I knew very well and people who knew my work, but I, I kept it up because it was in the contract. And a book came out called Skywalking the Life and Times of George Lucas, which I think was the first real big book on George's work by Dale Pollock. And in the book, it was inadvertently mentioned that I was the author of the novelization. Interesting. At which point it seemed kind of silly to go on trying to deny it 
and my agent asked Lucasfilm for a release so that I could stop lying to people. <laughs> and it was Pat. It was Pat. It became so. And ever since then, I've been able to admit to it. And George very happily put in at least one of the introductions to the book, one of the eight million reprints that I was the author of the novelization. And everything's been fine. But it wouldn't have bothered me, except for having to lie to people, if it had continued that way, because that was the deal I signed. That's the only book I've ever written that uh, doesn't have my name on it. Wow. It's cool to hear um, that George gave you that credit. Um, Our first episode was with Athena Finger, who is granddaughter of Bill Finger, the co-creator of Batman, who until recently uh, never got his credit. So it's cool to hear uh, that George was so supportive with giving you your credit. You have to remember when this happened, this was a much bigger deal to George than it was to me. I mean, I was doing a spinoff, as I said, ancillary rights. He had his whole career, basically, right. writing up this film. And if he wanted his name on the book of the film, it made perfect sense to me why that would want to be so. And then there was the second, which was Splinter of the Mind's Eye, right. which I would love to you know, talk a little bit more about. Um, how did that go down? I know that was, it, it's, I've heard that that story was um, kind of commissioned to be a, a potential second film. Is that true? Yeah. The idea was, the only restrictions that George uh, put on me were, there were two. First of all, I couldn't use the character of Han Solo because Harrison Ford hadn't been signed for any future projects. And no Han Solo, to me anyway, meant no Chewbacca, at least at that time. So that's why those characters aren't in Splinter the Mind's Eye. The other thing was that it should be a story that could be filmed on a low budget. The idea being that if the first film, Star Wars, was not an enormous success, but not a colossal failure, that George would be able to reuse a number of the sets and costumes and props and so on in a hopefully intriguing, interesting, low-budget sequel. So that was the way I had to approach writing a novel, which is why Splinter is primarily set on a fog-shrouded planet, and a lot of it takes place underground. It reduces the need for expensive sets. The book opened with an entire, the entire first chapter of the original manuscript was a fairly complex space battle, which is what forces Luke and Leia down onto this planet, Mimban, which apparently we're going to see in the solo movie, which is kind of fun. Interesting. And, uh, well, they have all this lore sitting around that they can draw upon because Lucasfilm owns the rights to all that, right. which is fine. They, and that's how Splinter came about. Other than telling me it had to be filmed, if necessary, it had to be filmable on a low budget and that I couldn't use the space battle opening, so I had to take out the whole first chapter. Other than that, the manuscript was left pretty much untouched. And how did you go about telling that story? I mean, obviously, what materials did you have to kind of draw from? Obviously, you had the original movie at that time, right? Not just the script. What did you have and what kind of research did you do to prepare to write this novelization to expand upon that world? Splinter was finished something like six months before the movie came out. Wow. Okay. I never saw the the movie until after I had turned in the manuscript for Splinter. So I wasn't able to draw certain conclusions or link certain things up as well as I would have liked to because I hadn't seen the finished film. It was simply an adventure featuring three of the main characters from Star Wars, Luke, Leia, and Darth Vader. 
And I had to spin a science fiction tale around that and pretty much came up with everything else because there was nothing else um, in there, with the exception of the Kyber crystal, which was kind of floating around. And it's like my spelling was different. The original spelling was K-Y-B-E-R. Wow. And I changed it to K-I-B-U-R-R because I didn't want people reading the story to get any confusion to get confused in any way with the Khyber Pass in Afghanistan. Right. That makes sense. Probably wouldn't have been that many, but uh, you, you always try to make these things, to differentiate, th- differentiate these things as much as you possibly can from reality. You don't, you don't want something, even if it's just spelling, pulling people out of the story. And in Splinter, there's a love interest, uh, a connection between Luke and Leia, were you ever given any direction either way on their relationship or were you just going off what you read in the screenplay? The only thing that I knew about Luke and Leia was that um, the impression I got from Star Wars from the first film was that there was kind of a competition for the affection of the princess between Luke the farm boy and Han the rogue. And since Han wasn't in Splinter the Mind's Eye, uh, any kind of relationship between Luke and Leia just involved Luke and Leia. And the one thing that I had to draw upon was that kiss she gives him when they swing across the trench inside the Death Star. And she says, for luck. And uh, it didn't strike me, even in retrospect, as a particularly sisterly kiss or a particularly filial moment. And we all know that there's a fairly uh, more intense kiss between the two of them in the original footage for Empire Strikes Back, which was later taken out. and But this is how these things evolve. You know, if you don't sit down and plot out in detail 12 volumes of a book or 12 episodes of a sequel, uh, of a, a movie involving sequels, you're not going to see all these things. You're just right. going to develop them as they go along. And I'm sure that, was, that relationship was one of the things that developed as uh, the story progressed. But at the time I was writing Splinter, even the first film hadn't come out. So I had nothing else to go on except the screenplay. Did any of the elements in Splinter influence elements in Empire? Or was Empire written in a bubble outside of Splinter? For example, the Swampy Planet, Vader's arm? I have no idea because if there was a bubble around Empire, I was outside of it. Got it. And I have... No copyright on amputations or right. uh, or or swampy worlds. <laughs> I'm I'm the wrong person to ask about that. The person to ask about that would probably be Lee Brackett, who's no longer with us, and Lawrence Kasdan, and George, and possibly Erwin Kirshner. I had nothing to do with Empire and anything that was used in Empire that was drawn from or inspired by Star Wars. Or splinter, excuse me. That's fine. That's what happens when you do a work for hire. Doesn't bother me. I'm very flattered if it did, and uh, but I have no idea if that's the case. So I had recently reread Splinter. Uh, since the time that it was written, there have obviously been a lot of new Star Wars films. But reading that book to me is so refreshing because. At the time of its writing, um, Star Wars was still new and pure. Uh, There was only one Star Wars film at the time, uh, and there was so much to be explored. Do you get a lot of people approaching you, asking you about how you feel about the saturation or potential oversaturation of Star Wars films these days? 
Oh, sure. <laughs> and it's very nice that the book's still in print and people still enjoy it, even though there are things, as you've already pointed out, that don't quite fit with the way the timeline and the story have developed. But that's just the way it goes. But at the time, there was no baggage. Uh, Star Wars was not this gigantic, multicultural, transplanetary cultural phenomenon. <laughs> right. And it was just a it was a very successful, fun movie. And before it came out, it was just as much fun to work with. And so I was able to do pretty much anything I wanted and without worrying about what might come after, if anything ever came after. You have to remember that nobody expected right. the kind of success Star Wars had. Nobody anticipated that it would still be going strong decades later, because that generally just doesn't happen with film. And although the fact that George was inspired by serials, and particularly Flash Gordon, is kind of interesting in retrospect, because that's what Star Wars has become. Right. It's a big, long, really expensive to produce serial. One big takeaway from reading Splinter is that um, obviously, in the movies, we never hear the characters' thoughts, but in Splinter, we do. For example, um, Luke thinking about Leia. For you, as a writer, is there a reason why uh, you focus or gravitate more on the medium of the novel as opposed to film or a screenplay, um, where you can't say what the characters are thinking? And have you ever considered moving more towards screenwriting? Why? Well, I- I have a master's in fine arts and film from UCLA, and I thought that's what I wanted to do. But, you know, your life takes different turns. And I did end up writing the treatment for the first Star Trek movie. Right. And I thought I would be asked to at least contribute to the screenplay for that film. And as soon as it became a big budget motion picture instead of a movie for TV, which is what it was originally designed to be, I became an instant non-person at Norway Productions and Paramount because there's suddenly a lot of money and a lot of ego involved. And I was a nobody as far as the film world was concerned. I had no pull. I had no leverage. Uh, I wasn't nice to people I didn't want to be nice to, and I didn't go to the right parties. I was out of the necessary contact loop. And I offered to contribute for nothing, which was probably a mistake that probably immediately put people on guard. Like, well, what does he really want? And all I wanted as a fan was to see the best movie possible when I sat in the theater. But I wasn't asked to do anything with the film. And uh, it, it was an unpleasant experience, let's say. There's plenty about it online if people want to read more about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, my wife looked at me one day. My wife, Joanne's from a town of 300 people in West Texas called Moran. And she didn't care much for Los Angeles or Hollywood. And she saw me stomping around the house. We were living in Big Bear Lake outside of L.A. at the time. She said, you sure you want to live here to be near these people? And I thought about it. And I thought, what I decided was I love movies. But I'm not so crazy about the movie business. And there are people who thrive in it. And I can talk the language and I can do the stuff. But we decided to move to Prescott, Arizona where I very comfortably have been able to write original work and novelizations, and nobody bothers me, really. And you make these life choices. And I could have stayed in Los Angeles, and I probably could have, I would assume, have gotten more more substantial movie work, but I'm not so sure that I would have been as happy, and I certainly wouldn't be able to do as much traveling as I've done in my imagination. 
Can we talk about your worlds, Humanix Commonwealth, Spellsinger, uh, and where you're at with your body of work? I've done very long series. You mentioned the Humanix Commonwealth books and also Spellsinger, but I've done a lot of standalones as well. And I like to try to challenge myself, so I try, I'll bounce back and forth. When I'm in the mood, I might do another Pip and Flinks book, which is part of the Humanix Commonwealth, mm-hmm. or I might do another Humanix Commonwealth book. I've, I've done one. Uh, which is uh, not even sold yet, called Secretions, but it's set in the Commonwealth. And then Relic is not set. Relic, which I mentioned coming out in August, is a completely standalone novel that doesn't relate to anything else I've written. And I did a historical novel one year called Maori uh, because I'd never done a historical novel, and I thought that would be fun, and it was. It was a lot of work because you can't fake everything in a historical novel. Uh, I did a contemporary novel called Primal Shadows, which Clive Cussler was very fond of. But uh, if you don't challenge yourself as a writer, and not to be pretentious, but to say as an artist, whether you're a writer or a painter or a sculptor or a composer or a writer of popular music or anything else creative, you get stale. You may make a lot of money, may get your picture in the back of People magazine a little more often, but I don't think creatively you're as happy. I've read that there's uh, an environmental theme with your books. From your perspective as the writer, when you write those books, is there something that you would say like thematically or con- a consistency as far as what you want to express? Well, it varies. If you're writing sequels, obviously it's not something entirely new. Right. The first book at the time, Crying, features a, a very young, 14 years old in the story, a boy with a strange talent named Flinks. Philip Links is his full name. Flinks is his nickname. And I thought that was it. I didn't think I'd ever write another book about the character. <laughs> yeah, that was the la- the most recent one came out last year, Strange Music. So I'm still writing about the kid. He won't go away and he won't die. <laughs> because, he's, because he's an interesting character. It's not just because people want to see more more of him. It's because I like seeing more of him. But I have to wait until I think I can think of something new. There's a very long story arc involving him trying to find out where he's from and, and how the secret of his origins and his parentage and everything else. And that stretched out for a very, very long time and stopped finally with a book called Plink's Transcendent. And years went by and people kept saying, well, isn't, can't you do something else with the character? And I thought, well, he we just, we just basically saved the universe. It's kind of hard to top that. And then finally, one day, something did occur to me, and it was a fun idea. And so I went and explored it in the novel. But then I'll get an idea for something completely separate and different. It would be a, a particular idea, like, you know, how would you tell the story or a story about the last human being in the galaxy? Uh, and that became Relic. And of course, what you have, not to give anything away, really. But if you only got one human being, you either have a lot of aliens and or mechanicals, or you have a really long internal monologue. So people have to read that to find out which is which. But if uh, I, I, Spellsinger, for example, which is fantasy, I, I started because I wanted to write a fantasy. I'd never written a fantasy, but I didn't want to do wizards with long white beards and little elves and cute short people. <laughs> and, you know, Mighty Thud Heroes, I wanted to do something different. And that's how Spellsinger came about. 
You challenge yourself when you can. Not every book is an enormous challenge. You can't, if you're going to write a lot, you can't write something entirely new in every book. Uh, it's just not possible. The only person that I know who came close to that, he did it in short stories, not novels, was Robert Sheckley, who I consider to be the greatest short story writer in the history of the field of modern science fiction. Um, Sheckley would do a short story that most modern writers would hang an entire novel on, and then he'd do another one next week, completely different, that you would hang a whole novel on. Brilliant, wow. brilliant stuff. But as far as doing novels that way, I don't think it's possible. Even very prolific writers like uh, Isaac Asimov or Arthur Clarke or Honoré de Balzac or Alexander Dumas couldn't be completely original in each book. It's just not possible. And has your process changed over time? Uh, what's your process now, and um, what was it like then? Well, let's amuse some of the younger listeners. <laughs> I started writing on a ancient piece of mechanics called a Smith Corona portable electric typewriter. I then graduated to what was considered the ultimate writing machine of the time, which was an IBM Selectric, also a typewriter. And what I did after that was I started dictating my rough drafts. I had a tape portable tape recorder, for those of you who remember what tape was. And I would dictate my rough drafts, and then I would give the tapes to a professional typist who would transcribe them. And that would give me a printed rough draft. And from that, I would, at my IBM Selectric, write the final draft. Because I could talk much faster than I could type on these machines. Many years go by. And these things called computers become available. And people in the know kept telling me, you should get a computer. You can write faster on a computer. <laughs> and I would reply for, for some time and say, I can talk faster than I can write on any kind of a machine. And I eventually broke down and I bought a Zenith black and white laptop and started writing on that. And it had something called spell check, which was, hey, really useful. And search and replace, which was even more useful. And I thought, well, I can't, I still can talk faster than I can write, but this almost gives me an automatic rough draft, and a clean one at that. So I started working on a computer, and now everything has come full circle. I still write on a computer, but they have wonderful dictation software now, things like Dragon Speaking. And if I wanted to, I could dictate once more instead of typing. But I'm so used to typing now on the computer right. that I see no reason right. unless, you know, a meteor knocks away the bottom four-fifths of my body uh, to switch back to dictating. But I could do it if I had to. Something we always talk about specific to writing is backstory. These days, I'm of the opinion that, and especially in sci-fi, I think it's super important. Backstory is it's part of the mystery. In 1977, when the first Star Wars movie came out as an example, you were introduced into this world that existed um, after a Clone War. You didn't know anything about that. And for years, there was this mystery. Now, we live in an age where kind of everything's explained, every single detail. Do you have any thoughts as, from a writer's perspective as far as, is there such a thing as revealing too much backstory and digging too far and in, in showing every detail? Well, it depends on what kind of a fan you are. Some people don't want to know all that stuff, and some people live for that stuff. Uh, and it's kind of fun if you want to go back and, and dig something up and find out why somebody sneezed 
north instead of south in a particular scene and argue about it online for, you know, 40 <laughs> days and 40 nights. That's fine. What it does is, is expand the enjoyment of the story. And people only do that for things that they enjoy. And if you enjoy a film or you enjoy a book and you have a way of enjoying it even more, uh, then I say go ahead and go for it. Just don't expect the people who create these things, who didn't generate that kind of a backstory for you, to go back when you write them an email or a letter and say, why did this character sneeze north instead of south <laughs> in 12 of the book you wrote in 1986? Because you're probably not going to get an honest answer. But that doesn't mean you can't invent one for yourself. <laughs> What's your, and this is a completely off topic, what is your day in the life now? Are you writing all day? Are you still, that's the number one? or? Well, it's the number one. I just don't feel compelled to uh, or have the need to write quite as frenetically as I did many years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, for one thing, everything is a little bit slower. I, I like to think, I flatter myself in thinking that the brain is still just as fast, <laughs> but the rest, the rest of the machine has slowed down somewhat, and uh, my wife's health is not good, and uh, there are a number of things I have to do domestically that I didn't used to have to do, which is fine. It's part of, it's called life, and so you cope and you do that. But basically, I get up in the morning, I do some things around the house. Like I mentioned earlier, we have six cats. And they require attending to, because they're all indoor cats. After that, I go out to my study, which is in a separate building. And I read a fair number of periodicals online, both domestic and foreign, both for research reasons and to keep up with current events and science so that I don't turn in a story where I look like an idiot because mm -hmm. something happened in, in, in Mexico last week that I wrote about wrongly. You have to keep up. Interesting. And then I'll try to write something. And I'll, I will tell myself, you must write one page today. That, that's all you write. You write the one page. And it invariably turns into more than one page. Barring outside interruptions, uh, I'll get more than that done. If I don't get anything done in the morning, and have lunch, then I'll try to write something in the afternoon. But I can't write all day. I'm not one of these people who can sit down and discipline themselves and write uh, write from nine to five with one break for lunch and two breaks, one in the morning and one in the afternoon for coffee, five days a week, like a regular job. I write very quickly. I always have. Maybe it comes from talking so much. <laughs> but I'm, I'm more of a sprinter than a distance runner. I'll get a lot done in a very short period of time, but then I'll have to stop. Uh, sometimes I can write an entire scene or an entire sequence, however many pages that is, but before I go into the next one, I have to stop and think about it. It's not an endless, continuous sheet of paper. There might be some, well, let's use Splinter as an example. You have that first chapter, which is, as I said, a complicated space battle, which is gone. Assuming that I could write that over a period of a couple of days, once that's over, I then have to stop and think about what happens next before I write it. So it's a it's a write, it's a think, compose in your mind, and then get it down, and then stop and think and compose the next thing you're going to write before you start putting your fingers on the keys. And once you know, a couple of after, couple of afternoons a week, I'll go to the gym, even if I wasn't competing which I don't do that often anymore. 
I'd still do it because I think it's wonderful exercise and you can do it till you drop dead. 30, 35 years ago, I was looking for some kind of exercise. I used to go body surfing, which you can't really do in Arizona and um, play a lot of basketball. And I was reaching the point physically, never mind that I didn't have an ocean handy, but basketball wise, where it wasn't just a good idea for me to go out and run around with high school kids. So I was looking for something I could do until I literally dropped dead and came down for exercise. And it came down to golf, swimming, or weightlifting. Now, golf, I don't consider a sport. I consider it more of a hobby. Swimming, I love, but I grew up swimming in the ocean, in the Pacific, and switching from that to a YMCA pool just <laughs> Not the same. No. And as far as the weightlifting went, I... You'd see these pictures of people, and from the neck up, they were their actual age, and from the neck down, they were all 35. And so I thought I'd try that for six months and see if it worked, see if I liked it, and both things were true, and I've stuck with it ever since. And I think it, from an exercise standpoint, it, it won't do much for your long-distance running, but in every other aspect of your life, it's a good thing to be doing. Definitely. So you had talked about your process. Do you ascribe to the outline, like um, writing from the beginning and the end and, and working your way backwards and filling in the gaps, or do you have a different process? That's what I used to do. Okay. Mostly because, uh, well, because I needed to do it for my own, my own use, and also because editors wanted to see what was going on. After a while, when I had acquired something of a reputation for actually finishing things on time, they stopped asking me for, for outlines prior to submissions, and we would just do a, an open contract, actually. And I would go write what I said I was going to write. But I still used outlines, and then it got to the point to where I would do a one or two page or three page, just notes, really. And then I would get the notes together in some, some kind of an outline, and then I would just start page one, chapter one, writing the book because I knew uh, that I was going to get to the end. It's sort of like a long-distance trucker as opposed to a novice. You know, I, I, I know how to get from Los Angeles to Boston via the interstate freeway system because I've done it so many times versus some kid who's just starting out. Right. I don't even really do an outline anymore. Sometimes I really don't know how the book's going to end. I know the general destination. I have a, a, a pretty good, I have a vague idea of how I'm going to end it. But there have been books where I didn't know. And books where I had an ending and I threw it away a third of the way or halfway through the book because I thought of something that worked better. Something that a lot of writers struggle with is procrastination. I know you mentioned every day you want to write something. Did you ever kind of struggle with that or do you have words of wisdom for those who do? I guess I've been very fortunate in that regard. I've never had any trouble with that. I think it really comes down to, to uh, discipline. If you tell yourself you're going to write one, what I tell students, beginning writers, who have trouble with it is, I said, look, write one page a day. Just write one page a day. You'll be surprised how much more you might write. But don't worry about that. Write one page a day, even if it's junk. Once you finish page one, don't go back and worry about how bad paragraph three is on page one. Write page two. And then write page three, because you can always go back and fix page one and fix page two. The important thing is to get the words down on paper and get the story moving forward. 
whether it's fiction or nonfiction or a poem or whatever. People will obsess over getting page one correct while they're working on page one, when it's much more important to get to page 10. So true. But people, people worry. They say, well, this is no good. You know, I don't have any idea where I'm going with this, and I, I don't think this character is working. You can go back and fix any of that. That's what editors are for in motion pictures and television. And you can do that, too. It's much more important to get from page one to the end of your story than it is to fix each page as you go along. And that's where a lot of people get bogged down. They'll get, let's say you get to, let's say you're writing a novel, and you get to page 50, which is a fairly, fairly substantial way into your story, and you don't like the way the story's going, and you don't like this character or that character, just push on through to the end. You can always go back and fix it, even if you have to rewrite the whole thing. At least you'll have words in front of you. And if you can't bear putting down words on a computer or words on paper, Get a little dictaphone, which they have wonderful ones now, and talk your story. And don't worry about the grammar. And don't worry about the punctuation. And don't worry about paragraphs. Just talk your story. I don't know how many people I've told this to, especially people working on nonfiction, who are worried about continuity and chron chronology. So don't worry about all that. When you have an idea, when you have a thought, something you want to tell, talk it down. And then you plug it into your computer these days. And it'll transcribe it for you. With, with the machines we have now, there's no excuse for procrastination. So you've talked about your life. You even said that if you live long enough, you become a part of history. Are there any core life lessons that just stand out? They don't have to be about writing. It could be about just life in general. They're just off the top, just come to you. Uh, two things. First of all, whatever you decide to do for your life, Really work hard at, at finding something that you enjoy doing because there's nothing worse than turning around when you're 40 or 50 years old and looking back on the preceding 20 or 30 years, however financially rewarding they might have been or rewarding in other ways and finding out that you didn't enjoy it, that it was just something to get you from day to get you through the week and get you through the month and get you through the year. And that's how a lot of people spend their lives. That's not to say that you have to be a great painter or a musician or anything else. You can be perfectly happy carving you know, wooden Indians in Idaho with a chainsaw or working as a janitor. You see this on the news all the time. Doing, it's not a menial job. No job is menial if it's meaningful to you and if it's something you enjoy doing. You find a way to enjoy whatever you're doing. Otherwise, you should be doing something else or you're going to be very, very unhappy when it gets time to start collecting Social Security, if you make it that far. The other thing to remember is that your life hinges on very small decisions. I was not supposed to be a writer. I had never given any thought to being a professional writer. I was supposed to be a lawyer. And I went to UCLA on that basis and worked towards a degree, a bachelor's degree in political science. As preparation for going to law school, I was admitted to School of Law at USC and at Loyola, and I was down to choosing the two when almost on a whim, I thought, well, I'll apply to the Graduate Film School at UCLA, the writing program, see if I get in. My rationalization was, well, for the masters from UCLA, I'd probably get into any law school in the country because they know you can do postgraduate work. And if I hadn't done that, if I hadn't gotten in to the UCLA Graduate Film School, I would have gone to law school. I might still have written some things, but I doubt I would have written anywhere near as much as I've written, and I certainly wouldn't have had as much fun, 
and would not have seen as much of the world as I have, you know, it would have been a good life, but it wouldn't have been nearly, nearly as good a life as the one that I've been fortunate enough to have. So find something you like to do and uh, don't be afraid to make changes in life if, uh, if something comes along and tempts you. Is there a story that you've always wanted to tell that you haven't told yet? First thing that kind of comes to your mind. Well, for many years, I thought I wanted to do a contemporary version of The Thief of Baghdad, set in the contemporary Middle East. But that sort of thing, I think, has already been done uh, not so long ago, and probably better than I would write it. But other than that, no. I just enjoy exploring. I, I like going other places in my writing, just like I enjoy going other places in, uh, in my life. So no, I don't have some great, deep, secret story that I feel that you know, I need to need to tell before I die. I'd love to write classical music, but that would mean stopping writing for a long time and learning how to use a program like Sibelius a lot better than I can use it now. We started the interview talking about travel. What's your next destination in the world? I actually haven't been anywhere in, in a number of years for, for domestic reasons, but I hope to get going maybe one day again. And I keep saving Paris. You know how you save a certain book that everybody <laughs> says you should read? Right. So you're going to love this book, and you put it off because, well, you know, there'll be a bad storm, and I'll be rain, I'll be snowed in, I'll read it then. Or I'll be on a cruise, and I'll take it, and I'll read it then. They're just like Tolkien. People say, well, I know I love reading The Lord of the Rings. I'll just keep, I'll put it off because <laughs> I have lots of time. I keep putting off Paris, and I'm running out of time to put it off. So I even know, I know what hotel I'd stay at. I, I've mapped it all out. I love planning trips. If I wasn't a writer, I'd probably be a travel agent before, or a tour guide before I'd be a lawyer. But I need to get to Paris, and I need to get to, uh, I'd love to take the train trip across the Himalayas from China up to Lhasa and Tibet. And I've been all over northern India. I need to get to southern India. And there's some places in South America. And I, there's lots of places to go. It's a small world, but it's a very diverse one. There's some places I haven't been diving that I'd like to go diving. I could fill up another lifetime with places I haven't been without even having to stretch. But, but Paris needs to be, you know, Paris needs to be next on the stop. So, you know, all things being equal, if, uh, if the French don't, uh, well, I'm not going to talk. <laughs> That's for the next podcast. We'll have you back. There you go. <laughs> um, with that said, before we go, is there a, a social media handle, website? I know you've got a website that you want to plug while you're, while you're with us here. Well, there's my website, as you mentioned, alandeenfoster.com. I, I put an update there every month to keep people up to date on things like forthcoming projects and where I might happen to light for five minutes. So there's that. And then Open Road Media, one of my publishers, maintains a fan page where people can interact on Facebook. And uh, that's, that's probably good enough. People have enough things to occupy their time. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff on my webpage. If people don't you know, go beyond just the update, there's over 100 pictures from my travels. And one of the fun things that I know at least a couple of people have done is to look at the pictures and try to match them up with stories that they've read. Wow. And there's a guide to the Commonwealth. There are maps of the Commonwealth and a whole chronology of the Commonwealth with all the stories put in there in proper order. And it, it's, it's kind of a fun site. It's not just a listing of books and upcoming appearances. And I know you mentioned you were working on uh, a 
couple stories. Did you want to plug those officially to those listening so they know what they are when they're coming out? Matt Amos Malone, The Complete Stories, which is a collection of 18 previously published stories about a crazy mountain man named Amos Malone, comes out in July from Delray. Relic, a standalone science fiction novel, comes out from Delray in August. I have a completed Commonwealth novel called Secretions, which has not yet found a publication date. And uh, I'm working on a, a story, right, a novel right now. I'm about three quarters of the way through called Prodigals, which is about an invasion of Earth that doesn't quite go as people expect, hopefully. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for sharing and uh, thanks for taking the time. It's been uh, an honor and a pleasure. Uh, we hope to have you back soon and uh, we hope you get to Paris. I enjoyed it as well. I have to go to Paris <laughs> because, because, well, it's, it's Paris, but uh, before I go, I need, my French needs to get a lot better so I can get all the puns, get all the puns and asterisks Definitely. in their proper context. That's important. So, all right, Alan, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll let you go. I really do appreciate the time, though. Yep. And for those listening, we hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production, copyright 2018, all rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod. <laughs>